Greetings from the Commonwealth of Kwanzaa Society's talk show. This week we're adding a little bit, uh, a bit of a different part of the show. I want to get into a couple of the great books that I pulled out of my dad's library and kind of talk about those, this one book in particular, and how it kind of makes the point that I'm trying to make about the need of a central culture and the black population. So this book is entitled How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America by Manning Marable, a professor at uh, Purdue University. And so we're going to talk about that book uh, later on. But uh, first, I'm going to get into why I'm here, why the show's here. Uh, and this is the Kwanzaa, uh, Kwanzaa Society's talk show, and this show's been created to bring to light the need of a centralized culture in the African-American community and how many of the struggles in the black community are rooted in the lack of a, of a centralized African-based culture in the black race as it exists in Western Hemisphere and Western civilization. As, as I normally say, I'm your host, Clarence Jones, today, and I'll use this show to make a case for using that fall holiday of Kwanzaa as a platform for the many different kinds of black people to gather around. What I'd like to do is to take Kwanzaa and instead of it being a once a year holiday, turn it into a year round system. And so, and then the next question, of course, is a fair question. Why Kwanzaa? Well, Kwanzaa is African. It is from Africa, but not specific to a particular tribe of Africa. So it is inclusive to all African peoples. Kwanzaa is a first fruits harvest celebration that does not infringe upon religion, nationality, geography, or ethnicity. I believe the African peoples need an ancestry-based system that all African people can rally around. We're, diff- we're just a lot of different types of people. We're different shades from different er- parts of the globe with different worldviews, and the one thing that ties that together is culture. And so not having one, really hurts you if you're working on this planet. And so a, a ancestral-based system would give people, black people, like I said, something to rally us together around, which would give us better camaraderie, more familiarity, which would lead to more continuity, which would then lead to, again, more camaraderie, which would lead to an enhanced ability to organize and coordinate and orchestrate as one cohesive group. Now, of course, all those processes together are what is called unity, and that is a key ingredient that's been lacking, and it's been at the root of many of our problems and struggles and has hampered our ability to deal with adversity, struggles, and our enemies as one force. So I want to take this show to make a case for a central culture in the black population and the practicality and efficiency of using Kwanzaa as that particular platform. A lot of other African-based systems, uh, there, you know, you, we can, we, we all can't be Muslims. We all cannot be Christians. We all cannot be Jews. And so, and of course, when you go back to Africa, we're of different tribes, and these tribes have different languages and cultures, and so that creates presents different problems for us. I believe Kwanzaa is that platform that is the most efficient out there 
that can be that can be utilized by the most uh the largest number of African Americans or African people. And I'm going to cite so I'm going to use this show and I'm going to cite history, my personal life as a former pro athlete, current events and books I've read, as we're going to talk about this week, because we're on a new book, uh, as illustrations of that need of a central culture in the black population. So before we get into where we always go, uh, well, we, we still need to ask that question, since I'm just stated how important culture is. The main question should be, um, you know, since I've dedicated this show to the illustration of the need of a central culture in the African-American race and the African race, with the aim of explaining the consequences of not having that central culture in the black race historically and, pleasant, and presently, a, a fair question is what is culture and why is it so important? And of course, culture is a rendezvous place for ethnic groups. It is, if you don't have a collective culture, a common culture, you cannot collectively do anything economically, socially, politically, security-wise without that place. Culture is the daily rules and regulations of a race, ethnic group, a corporation, a football team, any group has a culture that it revolves around. Culture is a playbook for a race, for ethnic groups, nations. Culture is a coming together of shared values and beliefs, customs, with symbols of status. In your, it's interesting. In a, in a culture, a poor man in America, let's say America as a West, as Western civilization, it is a bunch of cultures, different cultures coming together. A poor man, he may just be a super, but when he goes to his culture, when he goes to his group, his ethnic group, he may be a man of higher status for cultural reasons because he is a religious leader, because he is a military leader, or, or because of his experience on the street. So culture has specific status symbols and designations that uh, they give to each, each, uh, each one of its members within that culture. So what I'm saying is just because a poor man, a poor Irish man, may be in his, within his culture looked up uh, looked up to because of his experience, because of where he comes from. A, a Asian man may not have material wealth here, but in his village, in his community, he may be somewhat of high status because his family name may be well-respected. So culture offers all of that. Culture must be learned. You're not born with it. And so this is where the unity and the continuity comes from because now it's the teacher, your brother, your father, your mother, father, your grandparents that teach you the culture, your siblings and friends try to maintain the culture. You interact with each other through the culture. And so that's a, it's a critical aspect. Uh, it is a connecting point of race and ancestral rituals of success, child wearing education, stewardship, culture, uses uh, artifacts to remind you of that culture. Culture is a center point for groups, and, uh, and it is a, well, it's a center point for social movements as well. It is a center point 
for young people to have fun around their culture. So it is an economic culture, it is an economic strategic planning for a race and ethnic group as far as acquisition, businesses, land acquisition. Uh, my, my sister lives in Two Gardens, New York, which is Queens, and apparently, you know, a large number of East Indian uh, people are moving in there. And so they, what ethnic groups do, they utilize the diaspora, which is the connecting point in the systems that they use to help each other internationally. And so once one comes into an area, they start bringing other people to that area because it's familiar. The person who's there knows how to operate in that area. They know where to go get your water turned on, get electricity, to go get a green card. Anything you want, there's someone already there that's kind of gone through that process. So if someone goes there in January uh, and their countrymen are coming there in July, that countryman who got there, that person got there in January has already been working the system for four or five months. So uh, this is, this is the benefit of diaspora, and this is why you see ethnic groups when they come into the United States. They tend to go to the same area, and so well, anyway, my whoever my my sister's friend, very friendly with one of them, and the lady said, "Oh yeah, we're, we're going to take over this eventually." You know, like it's so routine; they have it down pat. They one moves in, and everyone starts moving in, and then they kind of all uh, uh, migrate to this area. So this is this is. As far as acquisition, as far as taking property, as far as, as far as establishing a safe zone for an ethnic group, a central culture is critical to that. And, that does, and I'm not saying that that's a good or bad thing. I'm saying, and hopefully we'll get into it today, um, I'd like to talk about what I call, I'm noticing, I call it liberal overload. So I'll, uh, hopefully we will get there get to that point sometime today in the show, but ethnic groups coming and establishing uh, their own sphere of influence is not, I don't think it's good or bad. It's a reality. They need to do it for their own safety, uh, knowing how to operate, get jobs, and, you know, in this country is something that, you know, so it's good to have assistance with. It's good to have people that's already gone through that and can help you. So uh, culture is a transporter of the race's history. It's identity. The race tells you who you are. We are the chosen people. We're the chosen ones. We're the first, we're the first people. Culture does that. Culture gives you that self-confidence and that expectation to do big things in this world. There's no way around that. It is and, and, of course, the culture is a template for the race, and without it, it literally cannot exist. And so this is why this is one of the main – these are the pillars of culture and what it is, what it does. And so only culture can give you a serviceable dynamic between genders. Only culture can organize you around economics. Only culture can give you a – can help you properly de- deal with disputes – um, within the ethnic group. Only culture can create a better dynamic between classes, races, rich and poor. And, and within the black race, 
that's an interesting point of view within the black race. You don't really want to be called corny in my, in my ethnic group. That's a negative. So what I'm saying was in the black race, if your mom and dad went to college and your mom's a doctor and your dad's a lawyer and you're the Huxtables, that is actually not a good thing in many black areas. And so that's, where not having a central culture is not, you know, that definitely works against you. Only culture can, a central culture would give more familiarity between classes of black people. So you're not the poor black people. We're not the rich black people. You're not the bourgeois black people. You're not the ghetto black people. At the end of the day, at some point, we need something to bring us together to just be the black people. And then from that point, we begin to work politically, economically, socially, and what have you. But if you don't have that, you can never do that. And so culture is the thing that does that. So we see now that their effort, that uh, central culture is a key ingredient that has been missing in the black race for generations and is an important component to the survival and prosperity of any race. Are there any historical examples, historic examples of a race benefiting from having a strong central culture? And of course, we talk about the Jewish population and the Jewish race and how they benefited from that. And so going back to the Middle Ages, the, uh, they were used as tax collectors, and they were, because of them being used as tax collectors in, in Eastern Europe by the lords and kings, they were distrusted by many of the other subjects and the peasants and what have you. And there was a lot of resentment. And so, and those resentments of Jewish people frequently turned violent to pogroms, where there'd be roving bands of people. It's just a lynching of basically Jews. But it actually could be more than just one person. They may kill families, and they burn their homes down and run them out. So pogroms happened in Eastern Europe uh, because of this lack of trust uh, for the Jews. The disenfranchisement, they were, they were actually disenfranchised and were not allowed to own property. You couldn't marry a Jew. And because of this, and they were non-agrarian, this forced the Jews to become uh, tradesmen and middlemen, which they did. They became the brokers, the land brokers, the loan brokers. And this, uh, uh, and a lot of uh, their natural dynamics existed with them and the king. What ended up happening, they were non-agrarian, and they were—they had a natural dynamic with the kings. They had a direct relationship with the kings, which I think worked against them. So that means the only people, for the most part, that benefited from Jewish financing were the kings and the lords, and not the other people—not the—not the knights, not the—not the other middlemen types of people. So. They were again not trusted by those people. They didn't. They took a lot of revenues from the church, 
the Catholic Church. So they weren't popular with them. So this this became another problem. But again, a natural dynamic existed between them and the and the king because they became urbanized because again they weren't agrarian. They, the, and the urban area was a safer area for Jews. And so the they they could congregate. They were in that urban environment. In the rural environment, they were too isolated from each other and easily ambushed by the other peasants. So that urban area became a better dynamic for Jews and of course, the king and the lords were already there, so that created that better symmetry between them. And so, this entered into uh, why they had had that strong connection to the kings. And so, the Jews ended up; they were actually routinely expelled from Europe. And then, uh, but since they were such experts with finance, there would be problems. They would have economic recessions. Then they'd be brought back and then thrown out again, and uh, so this was their this was their this was this back and forth relationship with Jews and the rest of the world for generations, and so they they overcame this and they created their own diaspora globally. Remember, the diaspora is a network of ethnic of ethnic groups working usually internationally. And since the Jews were in hostile territory globally, the natural diaspora economically, politically, and socially was, of course, international. So they began trading diamonds in South Africa. There were financiers in in the Middle East and England, the Rothschilds, uh, the uh, clothing industry, garment industry, uh, they, you know, kind of took over that industry in New York City, and so this has this is something that they've always uh, they've always been able to overcome, as far as anti-Semitism and people distrusting them because they had such a strong network, they had a a, a strong cultural diaspora that allowed them to make money. It allowed them to make other people money. It actually made them valuable to a lot of people. And so this was, um, this was definitely something that they, were, they benefited from. And so I like looking at, at, at the Jews. They have a very interesting history. Uh, they are, they, and, and interesting enough, people think Jews think one way. The Jewish population is extremely diverse, and and I mean they really don't think alike. They really um, have different ideologies, literally. And even in Israel to this day, they're not all on the same page. But somehow, when when the chips are down, when they are threatened, either politically, when they're threatened economically, when they're threatened socially, when they're threatened as far as their security, they rally. Uh, almost fanatically, and so you can't really blame them for that. And so they've uh, become a dominant force. Their strong central culture is absolutely the anvil that has allowed them to become a dominant force. 
And so when we look at the strength and the benefits of having a central culture, we now have to move on and get into ethnic groups that have suffered. And one of the major reasons they have suffered is not having that central culture, centralized culture. And of course, you know, we have to only look at the African-American. There are other, there are actually other ethnic groups that can be looked at, but our show focuses on the African-American community because I'm trying to sell the need of a central culture and how Kwanzaa can be that platform. But there are absolutely other ethnic groups that have um, not benefited from having a central culture and, and have be, their, their decentralized culture and their factionalism has aided other people in helping them. If you look at China, uh, China is one of the one of the oldest cultures, societies on this planet. It was a diverse and decentralized that absolutely allowed Great Britain to eventually take over and dominate China. Great Britain act literally did the same thing to China that it did to. Um, India, and I think it, it. I think it was took India first, and then China. Uh, I'm not exactly sure, but one thing that was was uh, was consistent with both. They were both of them were decentralized. Both China and India were completely decentralized, and it just made it easier for the British to encroach and dominate both of those territories because they would just either fight one one piece of, you know they would fight one faction in either country one one at a time or get them to fight each other which is definitely a tactic in middle in uh, military science and so that's those are some of the other ethnic groups that have not benefited from uh, having a, a a central that have that have a historically decentralized culture and not had a strong central culture and have had, you know, suffered the consequences of that. China and India definitely did. And India, which you, <laughs> you need to look at a map to really get an understanding and look at how big China and India are relative to Great Britain. Great Britain is not a big country for it to have dominated so much of the world. Now, they did that because it was unified and it had a powerful Navy, but a lot of other ethnic groups were not unified. So it just made it easier for them to, you know, keep people fighting each other and, and just take down, you know, each faction one at a time, which is what they, they did. So, but now let's get into uh, the black community and how its struggles and its decentralized culture has hurt them. The great author Chancellor Williams wrote in his book, The Destruction of Black Civilization, that the West African population who occupied that area were in fact refugees, refugees from East Africa where they built their own singular societies and civilization with an unknown language that, uh, that's actually unknown to this day, but they had a singular language. That's a critical point. Language is such an important component, an element of any ethnic group or any society. It tells you 
you know, obviously it's how you communicate to each other. It's how you communicate to each other without other people knowing what you're saying. It, it passes down, again, like culture, it passes down values. It passes down uh, history uh, just, just from language. It absolutely does. And so there was a central language in Africa in that area that has not been found again. So the, the, uh, so because of natural disasters, the immigration of Arab populations from Asia Minor, they began, they began, the Africans of East Africa began migrating across the continent to the western portion of, of Africa. As this happened, they began splitting up into different, uh, the different parts of West Africa, forming their own tribes where they created their own tribal languages and cultures. And so the result was something that hurt the Africans and helped everyone else. With one country having to up to 100 separate tribes residing in it and having no central state, European incursion was unchecked. And instead of the people coming together to unify once they realized that they were, in fact, stealing Africans and they were making deals, uh, instead of everyone coming together to prevent this or to stop it or to check it, they, now, this is why. You, if you have 100 tribes in one country, you essentially have 100 ethnic groups in one country. So an attack on one country or an attack on one ethnic group is not necessarily viewed as an attack on all. And so someone and a friend of mine in an international class explained that to me. And I asked him, he was from Liberia, and I said, tell me this, you're in Liberia, you, you have an, your own tribe. He said, yes. I said, your tribe has its own language. He said, yes, it has its own culture. Yep. I said, you, and, and, and actually, those people you call witch doctors are, are simply religious uh, people in that tribe. So you essentially, one tribe has its own language, culture, and religion. And he said, correct. I said, now, there's another tribe that's just tw- five, five miles away from you, and it's a different tribe. And I asked him. Do you consider that tribe, it has a different language, it has a different culture, and it has a different religion than you, but it's only five miles away from you? And I asked him, do you consider this tribe another race? He said, absolutely. I said, wow. And, of course, that's, that's, the, you know, that's game, you know, that's game, you know, game over right there. Because you, know? you have 100 different people different ethnic groups in one African nation or one Af- African region. And you know what? Maybe that's the problem. When we say African nation, were they even nations at that point? If you have 100 separate ethnic groups and they're not one central ethnic group, then that's not a nation. That's interesting. While uh, Africa was experiencing incursions from Europe, Europe was actually began, beginning to nationalize. So all those European nations that you see today, at some point, they were like Africa. They were kind of tribal. They were not national 
they were not national, um, they were not nations. They had city-states and what have you, uh, to a point that in Italy, there were actually slaves in Italy. And now, during Roman time, there clearly were slaves. So that shouldn't be a surprise that around the 1800s, 1700s, definitely 1600s, 1700s, around the time that European incursion began in Africa, literally there was the possibility of getting cheap slave labor from parts of Europe. But since parts of Europe were nationalizing, meaning we are one state, so if you come here and take one of our citizens, that is an attack on the overall state. Africa never really had that. And so that's what hurt hurt Africa and hurt African civilization. So they, they actually... Not only did it did they did the African West African territories not unify to prevent European incursion, they actually started infractional wars on each other to get labor that they would in fact sell to the European uh, traders. And so now, and the odd and unfortunate reality to this is Europe was not. There was no European nation was really that powerful at that point. The thing that made European nations and Western civilization powerful was the cheap labor that they took from Africa. And so it allowed them to colonize. It allowed them to gain, to create wealth for themselves. They became powerful imperial nations that then came back and took over all of Africa. At, the, uh, at a conference in the 1870s or 1880s, all of Europe, Western Europe, got together and divvied up and sliced up Africa as a continent, just like Great Britain sliced up China and India. All of Europe sliced up all of Africa. And the wealth that was created that allowed them to be powerful nations came from the African slave trade. That slave trade came from the lack of a centralized culture in the African population. An attack on one was not an attack on the others. So this was a consequence of that. Uh, The fragmentation of the black race has created a, a, a factual reality, a factual reality where the black man has not needed to build his own uh, civilizations and several thousand years. And so this has resulted with different, um, different realities. The black man has a problem. He does not value um, economic wealth. He does not value knowledge. He does not value information. He pursues mating rights instead of attempting to dominate the ecosystems in which he resides. Uh, he values physical prowess instead of owning property and wealth. He questions all black authority, and, but naturally subservient to non-black authority. So he does not necessarily, where there are some ethnic groups that always question power, uh, black males, not necessarily. But if, if there's another black man in charge, you know, that, that they have a nasty, we, we, have, we have a tendency to not like, taking orders from another black male. So, 
the the consequences of the black man not needing to build and maintain his own civilizations and societies is he's become remedial in the areas of military science, which is power creation and acquisition, not even understanding how they both work, making him a making him vulnerable to uh, predatory ethnic groups like the slave trade and making him a marginal ally at best because he doesn't necessarily understand, you know, how power works and how to, how, how, how to wield it. Just like I, I say from a military and I've said this before, more black, once Barack Obama was elected president, more black people needed to do more work. And they did the opposite. They took the thing, they took the position that everything was fine and Barack Obama was going to do everything for us, which is, of course, not what happened. And he was literally one of the most obstructed presidents in history. And the, it, it acts, if anything, went the opposite way because the, the white population that became concerned about their property began solidifying the legal systems and court systems and voting systems to try to maintain their their positions because they felt threatened by Barack Obama and the left wing. And so in order to make sure they protected their property and property rights, they try they have been attempting to change voting rights and everything. But that's military science. That's them reacting to the perceived threat of Barack Obama and his, you know, his, his whole administration and that whole mindset that came. So it wasn't just Barack Obama. It was a whole mindset of change and, and we're going in this direction. They reacted. And so the black community did not do what it was supposed to do, which was to continue voting and being active. And so that's caused a lot of problems. And so that he is remedial. In, in that area, and uh, not a good, not necessarily a good ally, a marginal ally at best. Liberalism needed a, a, a hard, a heavy hand in 2016, and it didn't present one. And so that, and we're dealing with those consequences as we speak. The so-called black community is quick to antagonize and alienate and disrespect one another with an emphasis on not being disrespected. So they're very, very conscious of, of uh, they don't mind disrespecting each other, but that same person, you better not disrespect them. So this is the mentality uh, that exists, that has been created from the black man not, being a, not maintaining his own cultures and civilizations. And this ecosystem of hostile discontinuity manifests itself in what I call black zombie nation. People that are not understanding power and not trying to accomplish it, not trying to acquire it, and not bothered by the fact that they don't have it. And since uh, instead of playing the game of power, in which, uh, which is about being able to reward your friends and punish your enemies, we have no, constant, we have no recollection of that. So uh, upon now, now this is there's a lot of history behind this. So it's not just now. Upon his death, Martin Luther King was very unpopular with the clergy of the United States, black and white. Okay, the black zombie nation has a skewed value system. We talked about 
uh, drawn to high-value vehicles regardless of economic realities, meaning uh, we, we tend to like high-value vehicles, and that's important to us, regardless of if our economic situation is even good. Um, and so uh, black women work... Uh, black women in, in zombie nation, uh, black women have to kind of carry the load by themselves uh, and and are not very respectful of black men. So the, so the, the so-called black community is extremely susceptible to gentrification because of the generations having to leave because there's no economic power base established. And that uh, they are not able to give jobs. So the kids have to go other places to, to find jobs making the black community susceptible to gentrification, which is which it was, it's oddly similar to slavery. Basically, outside ethnic groups coming in and establishing their dominance over traditionally black areas. Uh, activism is a rule of the day, which is reactivism. The so-called black community usually reacts uh, to, uh, to negative uh, actions uh, to the general public. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't take over Territory doesn't create a power base. And, of course, we are focused on the emotional issues as if that would appeal to people in power. And so that's, um, that's been a challenge uh, of black domination for a while. So, but... Uh, it, and, of course... One part of black domination is uh, black businesses that fail and are not supported like other ethnic groups. Um, and uh, we talked about the wealth leading the, uh, the black community. It tends to leave because if you get a good job, if you get good grades, there's no economic e ecosystem that we control that can necessarily give you a job. So that's where you're forced to leave. Um, and so then, and we also have to get into the black church. Uh, that is definitely a critical part of black zombie nation. The black church being a entity, the black church initially was a platform of rebellion during the slavery era in the United States of America. But uh, once the white plantation owners realized that there a lot of the revolts and whatever originated in the churches, they took the church from the black people, from the slaves, and gave them the church back in their way. They gave the church to the black population, and it became an instrument that helped the black, uh, the white plantation owners. And so it was, it was to maintain the status quo. And it was the, the black church became an instrument to help promote black people being dependent on white people and not getting and doing for themselves. And so this is part of uh, the black zombie nation. And so uh, moving on, those are the, the, the basics of, of this show and what I want to talk about and where we need to go. Um, as far as the need for a central culture, I believe a central culture would help us in 
it would help us to be together. It would help us to have a blueprint. It would help us to have a playbook. It would help us to be able to react in the way we want to react. It would help us to be proactive. And that's one of the key ingredients that's lacking in the black uh, population, that proactivity, taking power, creating wealth, using that wealth to, uh, to, to help us and our cause. We have a lot of black institutions, but they're not really connected. We have historically black colleges, we have black churches, we have black communities, but they are not online together. They're not in tune. They're not, there's no real symmetry between them. And so it does not translate to true economic and political power like it could and should. And so, but anyway, this week, I got my basics out that I wanted to get out, but I also wanted to highlight uh, this week's book by Professor Manning Marable, How Capitalism Underdeveloped Black America. And this is a book that, uh, and again, before I talk about Dr. Marable's book, Dr. Marable is a democratic socialist. He is a left-wing activist, I think, from the 70s or 60s. And so their take was extreme, but their, their facts and figures were, were spot on from what I could read and see, and I really like it. The only thing for me is uh, their approach is what the government should do for the black population. And I think there are times when the government needs to be called in and the government's usually the, the only people that black people have been able to turn to uh, as far as fair treatment and uh, acknowledgement that there has been transgressions and what have you historically civil rights act, uh, slavery, uh, trying to go away from segregation, uh, or uh, even affirmative action. You know, affirmative action was a, uh, a a reality. Someone basically said, this is where we had affirmative action. Someone truthfully and really and honestly said, we have blacks going to college. It's right after the 60s. And I think it's the Nixon administration that brought affirmative action uh, to America, which is crazy. He's a Republican. But affirmative action existed because someone honestly said, if black people go to college, they're still not going to get hired. Why? Because they're black. Simple. The black dude that graduates from Harvard and is a white guy from some you know, community college, he's probably going to get the job over the black man from Harvard because he's black. And if you want fair treatment and a realistic opportunity, if you want to tell the black population that you have a fair and equal opportunity for um, wealth and an and, and equal opportunity uh, at the American dream, there's no way to do it reasonably. And so you almost have to legislate it. You have to force it. You have to have, okay, quotas. You need to hire this amount of black people. That's where affirmative action came. It came to the, with the realization that black people, even if they did the right thing, were not going to get fair treatment. That's where affirmative action came. And so that was a federal law. And so I understand that generation's um, federal, um, you know, 
Dr. Mar- Marable's approach as far as having seeking justice and social justice from the government. And, and because as citizens of the United States of America, we should be able to turn to our government when there are transgressions, when we're being treated poorly, when we are being treated unfairly. We should absolutely be able to turn to our government and look at the constitutionality of policies and treatment. The problem is that the government is disproportionately controlled by, you know, non-black people. The government is disproportionately controlled by non-activist people. So even if there is a constitutional issue, meaning they've proven the constitutionality of policies and actions and forced the government to take action, eventually when those people lose power and those same people who, you know, did the bad things come back, they're just going to do it again. So it's kind of this back and forth thing uh, with, with relying extreme, exclusively on the government. And I think that generation did that. But anyway, I don't want to spend this time talking. I want to get into Dr. Marable's book. Um, uh, this is Manning Marable's most important work, it is said, written in the tradition of Walter Rodney's uh, How Europe Underdeveloped Africa and drawing on the wealth of recent economic data this book systemic, uh, systematically examines how all segments of the black community have been exploited by the dual structures of racism and capitalism. Um, Marable also explores the role of patriarchy in affecting black women and the black community as a whole. So he, again, uh, here it looks at racism, and, and he, uh, Dr. Marable looks at racism and capitalism and how that has hurt black community and, and how it is, how it has underdeveloped all segments of the black community. That's a very interesting point when it says all segments of the black community. Well, first of all, without having a central culture, we already know all the segments of the black community have very little continuity, almost like Africa, almost like Africa is tribalized like India, like China, factionalized, tribalized, and other ethnic groups. They were never one. And so there's no symmetry in the segments of the black population, and so making it difficult uh, for the black population to mount a defense, I believe. And so when Dr. Marable wants to look at how they've been exploited uh, the structures because of racism and capitalism. I agree, but I also think that if there was a central culture, that would have been harder to do. So let's look in a couple. We're going to look at passages in this book. I think we're running out of time. I like I like what we're doing. You just got to keep it, keep it going. So um, I I, uh, I I absolutely enjoy um, Dr. Marable's book, and um, I like where we're going, but uh, probably we may need a little bit more time. But anyway, uh, let's read a passage from this actual book. The rich inheritance of justice, liberty, prosperity, independence, bequeathed by your fathers is shared by you, not by me. The sunlight that bright that brought life and healing to you has brought strife and death to me. 
This fourth of uh, this fourth of July is yours, not mine. You may rejoice. I must mourn. Uh, what to the American slave is your fourth of July? I answer a day that reveals to him more than all other days of the year the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boost, your boasted liberty, your boasted liberty, an unholy license. Now, this is what Dr. Manning Murable um, has in his book. This is a passage from a Frederick Douglass speech. And so he's coming right out the back talking about the injustice of your system, basically saying that the system was always unfair and that what benefited you uh, was the opposite for us. And so having, you know, celebrating the 4th of July is a difficult thing for us to do. It's kind of cruel. And, it, you know, Frederick Douglass didn't pull any punches, and and Dr. Marable doesn't either. But um, so when we look at his book, uh, he he talks about uh, the relationship, and this part of the book is the intro, and and it's talking about the inequality. The relationship is filled with paradoxes. Each advance in white freedom was purchased by black enslavement. White affluence coexists with black poverty. The white state the the white state and corporate power is the product in part of black powerlessness. Income mobility for the few is rooted in income stasis for the many. Great point by Dr. Murable. He he's saying that everything that's geared towards you is bad for us. I remember hearing that after World War II, that um, the 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 um, the the soldiers got a chance to go to college for free, and the the not only did the soldiers get a chance to go for free, they made sure returning soldiers got opportunities to buy homes. They helped. Um, they helped the soldiers attain homes. Black people were specifically denied that. So it was the oh, wow, amazing. I forget that <laughs> at this time, but uh, they were. My uh, my uncle went to school, went to college, because uh, he was from in the military. And so they helped him go to school or what have you. But uh, since he was African-American, he was not given the opportunity to acquire wealth. So that's millions of, of white soldiers that returned from uh, World War II were given that opportunity to obtain homes with the help of the government, with black returning soldiers being specifically denied. So uh, that's, that's definitely... A part of that's an example of that. But see, my take also is on uh, on this as as far as black civilization and not having to maintain black civilization. Remember, the powerlessness of the black race to to obtain uh, to defend comes from not being together, as he talked about. 
your advancement, your corporate power is a product of black powerlessness. He's talking about the United States and, you know, oh, and before I forget, it's the GI Bill. The GI Bill helped to uh, returning soldiers get homes and uh, black soldiers were not allowed to do that, but they were allowed to go to school. So, again, my my uncles, or at least one uncle, two or ten. Uh, my uncle went to school on a GI Bill, but that was specifically denied um, as far as getting a home where white uh, white soldiers were helped to do that. So this is part of the that that little lag of justice that exists, and that pop, but that powerlessness basically came from black people not working together in the first place. That's my point that we're missing out on that not having um, a unified front hurt us in Africa, but it also hurts us in the United States of America, our inability to create a power base, our inability to create a collective organization and take over areas and, and control our own means of production. And so, um, that's a little bit of what I wanted to get into uh, this week. We're going to have to do more next week with uh, Dr. Manning uh, Marable's book. I absolutely want to get into it. I think there's a lot of things that we can talk about. Some of the things that most of the stuff I agree with, some of the stuff I don't agree with. And I think uh, a central culture is a key factor in that. So, but anyway, guys, thanks so much for your time this week. And, uh, We'll be talking with you again. I enjoy our time. I hope I've tried. I've attempted to make a case for how important a central culture is in the black race and how Kwanzaa can be that platform. I hope to talk to you again. You guys have a great week. Take care.